0: Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts, so if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A, dot com. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge.
0: Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. I love it when I get a chance to chat with marketers who, like me, operate marketing agencies especially when they are also leading speakers in the industry. And today's guest is just that, plus more. She is the founder of Brooklyn-based digital marketing agency, Media Valerie, head of strategy for J-Bear's Convince and Convert, and a professor in the graduate programs at Columbia University and City College of New York. She has advised She's advised brands including Allstate, Oracle, and has earned several awards, including a PR News Platinum Award and a Forrester Groundswell Award. Between our busy schedules, it's been a little hard for us to get together, but I'm so honored to say that she is here with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Zanti Ho. Hey, Zanti.
1: Lee, I'm so happy to finally be with you, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: Definitely. So I wanna thank you for joining me me today. And I'm gonna ask you first kind of an informal question Um, Between lecturing and leading strategy at Convince and Convert and operating your agency, how do you do it all?
1: (laughs) It's a great question. I always tell people that I function best when I'm extremely busy. Um, I am one of those people who just am really passionate about sharing information with other people. And that's why I do what I do. But I think when it comes to realistic Uh, management of my schedule, it's really all about time blocking, making sure that I have dedicated time for different kinds of work and different teams, and really being disciplined about the schedule. I think more than many people, maybe I live by my calendar. I'm running three different color-coded calendars at any given time, and I can really see how everything overlays, but that's practically speaking how I get it done.
0: (laughs) Wow. You know, when I was looking up some of the things you've been doing recently, I realized I was like, this, this lady is a lot like me, and I can't wait for this conversation because I know we're going to find a lot of points where I can relate to, um, and, and that's one of them. So I can I can appreciate that. Um, so let's go back a bit. I noticed a video from a couple of years ago when you said that now is the time for B2B video. I agree with you 100% then, and I still believe in it now, but do you think B2B has caught up on the idea of video, and what do you think, still holds some companies back?
1: I think that's a really interesting question because it, it gets at something that I think a lot of B2B organizations face, which is a conservatism when it comes to different kinds of new media and digital media, right? The advantage of video, even what we're doing right now, is that people get to really understand the expertise and build trust with the experts within your organization. For the vast majority of B2B organizations, we know that personal relationships are really important. And you can't scale that without a tool like video where people get to know you and really care and be interested in that expertise and that knowledge and really see your people in action. I'm working with a financial services company uh, right now where they just said to me, we feel like on our webinars, you really get to understand the smarts of our people, but what we mostly are doing is sending out PDFs. And I think that that's something that a lot of B2B marketers and just individuals even on the sales side, on customer service, on relationship management, they can all understand that. That's what it feels like, right? So I think that most B2B organizations are behind when it comes to video. And to your point about why are they holding back, I think it's because there are some things that can feel more challenging with video, many of which we can overcome now, right? When I started doing video with brands, this is probably 17, 18 years ago, the challenge was on the technical side. They didn't have the equipment. They didn't have the know-how. Bringing a videographer for a day really meant that they had to shut down a part of their office. So they had a backdrop. They had to schedule time with their different uh, experts within the organization or with their executives. It, It took a lot of investment. A lot of that isn't necessary now, right? We're Right now we're recording on Riverside. It's pretty straightforward. I do video webinars with all kinds of organizations on all kinds of tools all the time. And the video piece of it is pretty accessible. Every one of us either has a computer with a camera or a smartphone with a camera. They're most likely HD, the sound quality is pretty good. And so the challenge that I think a lot of organizations still face that I think is a challenge because we haven't invested in it Mm -hmm. is the human talent piece of it you need to do some video training or media training for your people so that they feel confident and i hear this all the time from my clients still They have somebody who makes those phone calls every day, has conversations with their clients. But when you say to them, can we do a video of you? They're like, oh, my gosh, I've never done a video before. I don't feel like I look good on camera. I don't know how to make eye contact with the camera the whole time. I think I'll just look flustered. And they don't want to look bad. They don't want to be in that situation. But their company has not made the investment to say, hey, let's help you look your best by giving you the tools that you need to have those skills. So I think that's one place that companies small and big can really easily make a little bit of an investment to build that confidence up because you've got to convince your people that they are going to look great and then they'll be more willing to share their expertise through video.
0: So who in a company, let's say you're the marketer, you know, you need video, maybe you even have buy-in from, from the higher ups or if, you know, from finance, you're going to do this, who do you then target? Your thought leaders, your salespeople, who, who do you go after?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it really depends on your organization and where do you build trust, right? Um, I'm a huge fan of Sally Hogshead's book, How to Fascinate. And she talks about how there's seven different dimensions that we as individuals, we as brands, can think about when it comes to what's fascinating about us. Are we really knowledgeable? Are we really prestigious? You know, are we really um, prescient and like looking far ahead and being innovative, right? And depending on what your organization has as that reason for people to be interested in you, you might select different people. So if you're an organization that leads with innovation, you probably want those people who are talking about the development of innovation to be a part of that content. If you're an organization where your service is really what's setting you apart, you probably wanna invest in having those people be the Mm. front people when it comes to developing content. So there's no one right answer, but I think understanding why customers should engage with you, what's really important to your organization in terms of that storytelling, how to fascinate, I think that will help you to determine who are the right people to put on there. In some cases, it's going to be salespeople. In some cases, it's going to be the R&D folks. In other cases, again, it could be your customer service folks because they're the ones who are really helping people to solve their problems. Uh, And and I think there's a valid case in in every one of those examples.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you've talked to a lot of companies who have executed on what you just said. And I wonder, for those that are successful, who's driving that? Which part of the company? What level is it marketing is it the c-suite is it who who for the successful ones who's driving it you think
1: oh i love this question i think that you of course need a strong marketing or content development team to make sure that the production piece of this goes ahead because it can't be scattershot this is not a one and done this is not a we did it Third quarter ones, maybe, you know, Q4, maybe we'll make a little time for it. it. It cannot be a haphazard effort. It has to be a really consistent effort, right? So you need the people who actually produce and drive the project forward. At the same time, if we're really talking about this idea of high-level thought leadership, where you have to be willing to, let's say, be a little bit vulnerable or be a bit willing to share I find that it is really valuable to have a champion in the C-suite. Now, it doesn't always have to be at the CMO. I've been a part of organizations where it's the CEO who understands, hey, this is the story that we really want to tell. Or, again, even the COO, if they know that that service component is really important, where they're like, we're doing really good work. We want that story to be out there. And um, at Convince & Convert, one of our uh, clients, uh Uh, for a long time has been Cisco and uh, they do incredible work in their CX customer experience space. And so it's really their CXO who has driven this attitude towards, we want to share our knowledge in this space. And I'm sorry, I missed a book. I'm talking about Comcast.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, putting together your two, your two answers there. One, we're talking about, um, you know, who should be speaking. And then we talked about who's driving, you know, Make, getting those people to speak. So I guess they're they're connected a bit, I guess, right? So if if you decide to make content based on your customer service people who are frontline and know what's going on, then maybe your CXO is the one who's behind that. Um, same thing as if your product is, you need product content, product video, perhaps your product team is behind that. That's how you would kind of find out who goes yeah. where. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And again, sometimes... Having a, having a C-suite champion is not absolutely necessary, but why it's really valuable is because that they will help to put that um, foot on the gas pedal to make sure that you have investment and support in that particular space. So certainly where you can get buy-in in terms of, again, the discipline that's most important in your organization, encourage... Uh, the the teams to always be looking for that support, and again, sometimes they're the ones coming to the table. I've had more than one organization where they come to me and say, "We've decided to do this content because our CEO, our CMO, whoever has said to us, we want to do this as a major push." So sometimes that's where the innovation is coming from.
0: And, and I've found that if you get the C suite as your champion or someone from the C suite, you're more likely to be able to be consistent and have a longer um, effort towards that piece of content or that content campaign, because uh, we know in content marketing it's the long game, you can't do it at the end of Q4 and expect results. You have to be committed to it. So maybe having that C-suite champion helps you uh, stay with it longer.
1: I think that's a great point for sure.
0: So staying along with with content, let's pivot from video to, to podcasting. Um, I know that you were, if I'm not mistaken, were behind the production of the Convince, and, um, convince Convert podcast, right?
1: Yeah, I've certainly been a part of the, the support team on there. That the, the production team in our company does a really fantastic job of uh, producing podcasts. Our, our flagship is uh, Social Pros, which has been around for 10 plus years and just won this year the Content Marketing Award for Best Podcast. So it's a great Congratulations. show. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. But I've also been uh, very happy to support many different organizations over the years, develop their podcasts, both on the B2B side and the B2C side. I actually did uh, run several podcasts for more than eight plus years. So so, uh, really uh, have deep experience in that space, really passionate about it. My favorite podcast that I've worked on over the years is probably um, for the International Monetary Fund, if you can believe it, uh, because... It's really helping educate people on the work of this organization that seems kind of distant, right? If you've heard of the IMF, you know that they're doing big work that's, you know, multinational and really impacts all of us. But at the same time, you're like, what exactly do they do? So being able to help them tell their stories is one of my uh, uh, proud work projects.
0: That's interesting. I want to ask about your experience in, in podcasting because I know you've seen a lot. And that's what I love to, I love talking to guests about things they've experienced to share that with the audience, because that's where I think the true insights come, not from, you know, just what you may read in today's blog, but somebody who's been deep in it long enough to give some a deeper insight. So what I want to ask you is, do you think businesses that are not podcasting are missing out on an opportunity to reach audience? Or is it just another channel to consider?
1: I think it really depends on, again, the the audience that you are serving. So for instance, last year, I was working with a financial services company that has a podcast. And what they really wanted to do was bring their experts to a very niche audience. So the audience itself was not necessarily very large, right? You're talking about the potential world of listeners out there is maybe only a couple of thousand people at the maximum. But because it is a really niche space, building thought leadership and trust was really important to them and making sure that they had this really personal connection to that audience. And being the go-to resource to them was something that they valued and did come from the C-suite down. And so they knew that they wanted to feature these voices on a really consistent basis and, and build out a tool, a platform for their internal experts to be showcased on an ongoing basis. And that's why we really spent the time and energy building out a podcast strategy that would allow them to be successful in doing that. They didn't need a ton of listeners. They just needed a really consistent basis of listeners to keep coming back and to feel like these were the go-to folks for this information. So not every organization should have a podcast or can have a podcast that's really compelling on an ongoing basis. You have to ask yourself, is this something that I would actually subscribe to? Podcasts are not like single videos. You have to kind of commit to the idea of listening to more than one episode because oftentimes the story that you're getting is from that ongoing experience, that repetition. So I really think if you cannot justify a series, if you could not justify eight episodes in a season existing of this content and then repeating that seasonally, then you shouldn't have a podcast. You should find a different way to do it. Do a webinar, do a video series, you know, do a social media series. That's okay. Those are totally fine. But if you know that your audience will keep coming back because of a certain kind of information that you can provide, and you have those expert voices or you could leverage expert voices, then there's an opportunity. And those those voices don't have to be inside your organization. Some of the most successful podcasts that our clients run really feature the expertise of their clients or customers. So what they're really doing is highlighting the stories of others. Even our social prose podcast is really more featuring other brands, some of which we've worked with, some of which we have not, and are just people within our community, right? And similarly, I think that's one of the powerful things about your podcast is you're bringing together the kinds of voices that you know your audience would be interesting, interested in hearing from.
0: Yeah, specifically marketers. And it's funny because the audience has broadened since I began because the podcast was called The Business of Content. But then I realized most marketers, most of my favorite content marketers, including yourself, are much broader than content. So I didn't want to restrict the conversation to that. And so from that, the the guests have broadened, the audience has broadened as well. Um, I want to ask you this, though, based on what you said a moment ago, and this is something I think... Um, So we we both have agencies that produce podcasts. And I want to kind of have some shop talk with you here based on what you just said. So I've had clients come to us and ask about a podcast. And what we end up telling them is, we think what you just want is audio content. Because if they say, well, we just want to do one or two, or even five, our response is, we wouldn't consider that a podcast because you you won't be growing a subscriber audience with that. So think of it as maybe long form content, like you would a long blog or an ebook that you will have content that you can repurpose. And in, in, what was the word term? Uh, atomize, I think it is you use. That's right. Um, That's right. You can use use it over and over. You have a great piece of content, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a podcast. I would call it audio content. What, sure. well, how would you approach that?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. Again, if you are thinking about what is the value of building a podcast, it is that subscriber base. It's people who keep coming back to listen to more content. And that's similar to a newsletter. You're thinking about it as something that's ongoing. And so if you do not have the kind of content or the appetite to support that on a regular basis, I completely agree with you. Treat it as a one-off and develop audio content that you're using in other ways. I will tell you, for instance, we've tested out um, a couple of different methods on the Convince and Convert blog doing um, just read-throughs of our top blog posts so you can get an audio version of that. And again, there's some value in presenting the content in just a different format because it appeals to a different audience, and that's great. But are we turning that into a podcast? Maybe not.
0: So you're making great audio content, basically. So I want to ask you about this. Pivot just a little bit and get down to you because I'll tell you, I've seen you speak and I, what I enjoy the most by hearing you speak is that you're very clear, which of course the audience by now has heard because they, they're learning from you right now. But you're clear in the points you make and then you back them up with data. And so I want to know or help our, our listeners understand if a marketer wants to create data-driven content, to attract customer engagement, where are some of the places that they might start?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. I actually just did a webinar that's available streaming on the Convince & Convert side with uh, my friend Andy Crestadina a little bit about this, because I think it's something that a lot of marketers are underutilizing. The reason that content that is data-driven Or has research as a big component of its storytelling is compelling, is that data is a heuristic, right? It's a shortcut for us to understand and make decisions. And the reason we want that is because there's too much content out in the world and there's too much stuff out in the world. And if you present me information that I can't remember or that doesn't stick in my brain, then you've really lost that opportunity. What we're trying to do as marketers isn't just put content in front of our customers right it's actually to create a mind share and that's really challenging because you've probably experienced this i sometimes will see the same ad i know it will be the same ad because i've heard the audio cue five times and on the fifth time i'll go what is this ad for i can't even remember (laughs) i haven't been paying attention i know i've seen it multiple times but i have no idea what it is about right Mm -hmm. and that means that they haven't won my mind share right especially on the B2B side, but still for, again, both B2B and B2C uh, companies, I think that the advantage of data is that it does act as that shortcut. It's really sticky and it's really credible. People believe you because there's a transparency aspect to having data, whether it's yours or third party, right? Mm -hmm. So how can a company actually develop out uh, content that has data? I think there's, there's three ways of doing it. First, of course, if you have your own data that you can share, you can aggregate customer data, you can collect from your own blog or share your own experience and analyze that, explain what you're seeing as trends, and then talk about it. That's a really great way to create a resource that a lot of people will tend to source. One of the things that Andy talks about in our session together is that for many companies, if you look at the pages on their website that have the most backlinks, those will tend to be research pieces. He looked at it on our site, Convince and Convert, and that was certainly true. Something like 15 out of the top 20. Don't quote me on that number. It's in the webinar. But somewhere around there, um, there were uh, those pieces were all um, either data or research, again, ours or third party. And so it really demonstrated the point, which is that, again, folks are looking for resources to point at for their own credibility. So... If you can create a report that analyzes your data in some way, shape, or form, that's really powerful. Um, Andy's company, uh, Orbit Media, which is a web design agency, did that. They just aggregated something like 500 of their clients' Google Analytics data and then shared like, in aggregate what are some of the things that they were seeing. Um, our friends over at Rival IQ, they do a really excellent job of this. They're a social media uh uh, analytics company and they aggregated a bunch of their clients in different verticals and then reported that out and told you kind of what the benchmarks are for performance. I bet you everybody in your audience is thinking to themselves. I would love to have some benchmarks for performance in social media in my industry. I have like you did it. They they said, hey, this is an opportunity. So that's that's category one of how do you produce data that's that's interesting. I think two is getting into um, a specific client. Uh, case study right so identify a client that you can work with and who's willing to tell their story and to really describe the their data journey and the different analyses and uh key performance metrics that they've used in conjunction with you to make decisions and really walk through what does this look like now you don't have to give hard numbers you can give percentage growth right but in a lot of ways you're building out that story of how did we make decisions that really impacted the trajectory of the decision making and that's really helpful because again that's something that people can understand and feels really concrete to them even though it's not necessarily applicable to them right if you have a data set of one you have a data set of one it's it doesn't translate to anybody, yeah. but it makes it so that people really understand what those benchmarks are. And that's a psychological uh, phenomenon, right? We're, we're really good at anchoring our minds to one piece of information. So we have context and that's really important. Um, that's something that I talk about with my students a lot is what are the behavioral psychology tricks that we can really leverage to tell a better story Um, And then the third area where you can really do more with your data, I think, is taking industry data, publicly available data, and then helping your audience to understand, A, what does this mean for me? And B, how do I apply this to my situation? So you don't have to generate the data, but you can help them to really break it down and and tell a more compelling story with that. Um, I uh, often uh, share examples from HubSpot. And I think they and also Co Schedule have been really effective on their blogs at doing this. They take research from other people who have done some different interesting studies that are relevant to the industry, again, speaking to marketers, and they talk about here's what this means for you. Here are some of the trends that we spotted. Here are some of the different ways that this data actually overlays with the behaviors that you might experience in your business line or as a marketer in a specific space. And by pulling out the so what, they're really making this data, a, a, I'm going to call it a launch pad or a springboard for their expertise, right? They're, they're providing the added value, but they didn't actually have to produce the data itself. So in, in any one of these cases, you're helping your audience to get more out of information that's available to you. In a way that helps them to better understand their world. And that's what I think is really appealing about it. So I mentioned the third one, because, again, I speak to a lot of folks who might be small businesses or solopreneurs, and they're like, well, I definitely don't have the time to go out and do research, do a survey, conduct this kind of deep thinking. But you are knowledgeable and uh, have deep understanding of your particular space. And if you can interpret the information that's out there in a way that helps your audience, I think that that's really valuable.
0: So what I'm hearing is, you basically named three kinds. You named benchmarks, you named um, case studies, and then you name kind of aggregating industry information to make it clear for, for you. And I wanted to know, you know, if, if there is such a thing, if, if there's any types that, that work better for backlinks or to drive traffic, or if it just comes down to does the data match the audience that's interested in it?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. Again, I'm I'm always going to hedge to there is no one size fits all answer. But um, when it comes to backlinks, I actually think that the opportunity in whatever space you're in may be to do a little bit of SEO research. Right. Understand what are people searching for that doesn't necessarily exist in your space that people want to know what the benchmarks are for this particular thing or the stats around a particular thing. Uh, Again, I'm going to mention Andy's company, Orbit Media, they've done a really excellent job of identifying these numbers and they call it the missing stat. So they identified that a lot of people were interested in understanding bounce rates from websites or the average age of a website uh, before it's overhauled. And obviously those are both really valuable things when you're a web design company, right? Because that's information Mm -hmm. that demonstrates your expertise and makes the case for you to make a sale for somebody because you can say, look, you're, Your website has a terrible bounce rate. This is the average that we see. And then people go, oh, maybe we should be working with you, right? So that really supports their sales process. But it doesn't have to necessarily be about your sales process. Depending on your company, you may find that there are other kinds of data points that are really valuable to your audience. The question that I would ask is, what is a number or what's an assumption that people make in your particular space? that nobody ever seems to have an actual citation for. You know, when you talk to your team, mm-hmm. everybody's throwing around this point of, we all know that X happens. And you're like, I've never seen a number to back that up. That's probably a good place to start.
0: Yeah. So those, those knowledge gaps, just like any other content, right? Where's the gap? How do you find some data to, to fill that gap that people are looking for? That's and I'm exactly glad you mentioned right. Andy, because Andy actually, I think, I'm quite sure it's scheduled to be on an upcoming episode of this podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, talk with him, and I might re- reference back to some of the things you mentioned. I'll do. tell you when I'm scrolling through LinkedIn and I see Andy's research, I'm always saving it to come back to you later because I love his research, um especially when it comes when I'm thinking about updating my website or optimizing things, I'm definitely like going back to Andy's research to to fill the gaps in information that I have. Um, you mentioned earlier you're a professor. So there's a question I often talk about and ask about, and now I've got somebody right in front of me that I can ask the question to. I want to get your opinion on this. Um, When it comes to someone who is going to school right now, because our audience on this podcast ranges from seasoned executives down to people who are interested in becoming marketers, and I often ponder... If someone is in school, say they're going to go through a four-year college, university, four, and be a marketing major. When they come out of that, now, knowing what we know about how fast things change, do you feel like as a professor, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here because you're on both sides of the fence. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like students are, or graduates, are prepared for the current marketing world when they've been in school for the past three or four years studying something that has changed the entire time?
1: Sure. This is a really interesting conversation. And I think, again, it depends on where you're sitting and and how you think about the, the value of education. For me, I only work with graduate students. Um, I've been a board member and a a lecturer at the City College for many years. I've been a faculty lecturer at at Columbia University working with graduate students. And in that space, you're really talking about um, professional degrees, right? People who know that they want to go into this industry because they've either been in this space for a little while or, again, they have some kind of a related degree that is taking them on this path. When we send those folks out into the world, It's not that they can immediately create a social media calendar on day one and start to produce great content. They don't necessarily have those skills. In fact, some of my best video producers have come out of art schools, right, because they are walking out of those uh, programs on day one with the exact skills that they need to do that particular work. What I think a, a person with a marketing or communications degree has is the frameworks to make good decisions about what matters for marketing. And that's really important, both on the undergraduate and graduate level, because I don't think that most schools are prepared to teach you the social media skills you need on day one and walk out of it. There are some exceptions, for instance, um, NYU, where I went undergrad, has some excellent uh, professional certification programs. Those are designed specifically for professional skills. The people who teach them are specifically people like you and me, where we're actually in the trenches, and they're teaching the skills that you need to actually get that work done. But if you're looking at a four-year degree or a master's degree, the point isn't to have those skills necessarily. And I think you're right, you will be behind the eight ball when it comes to coming out. But hopefully those programs have given you a fundamental understanding of how to analyze your audience, how to make good decisions about their motivations, how to build a framework for what to talk about, where to talk about it, how to look at the right channels and analyze what success looks like. And those are important frameworks that, quite frankly, I really believe in. I think that marketers would be better served if they were walking into their careers with those skills. It's not to say that you can't do marketing if you don't have those skills But it will take you longer in your career because you're going to actually have to learn that on the fly. You're not coming out of school with those skills necessarily. So that's where I think that marketing programs can be really valuable. The, The flip side to that, to your exact point of, hey, schools aren't necessarily preparing you for being a marketer, is that I do think there's real value if you're looking, especially for master's programs, but even undergraduate programs, If you are looking for a program right now and you're saying, how do I select one that's really going to serve my career best? There are two things that I tell people to look for. One is, are the lecturers and professors in those programs actually practicing out in the world? What is their experience there? Is it that they've got a whole bunch of people who've been professors for 20 years? Because again, in some industries, that's okay. But quite frankly, nowadays, Even in economics, I would be really skeptical of somebody who's only been a professor for the last twenty years, because it means that they're not maybe history and English, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But in a lot of industries, I just think that that's not a really practical way to recruit. In fact, again, on the Columbia side, this is something that they really pride themselves in the strategic communications program. Of all the majority of the people who are actually lecturing have real world work that they are doing day to day and so that makes a real difference when it comes to who you're learning from so that's one thing the second thing that i would be looking for is is this a program that supplements with a lot of uh guest lectures and networking opportunities. So can I at least meet and connect with people who are doing this work day to day? Because that makes a big difference too. You don't have to walk out with all of the skills necessarily, but you better know who to go to in order to learn those skills and make those connections and get advice. And that's something that I think is really valuable about networking. I am often sending both, both uh, graduate and undergraduate students who I mentor to different people to talk to them about specific areas because I know who is going to be able to answer the questions that they have, even if I can't answer it. And that is really important to their education. I
0: think all those things you just said are just as important to recruiters as it as it is to the students, because I'm sure we've both seen situations where recruiters or companies have asked for people who are social media experts, but then expect them to have a strong foundation in marketing, which they may not have. They may be a rock star social media expert, may know the perfect way to to maybe if it's if there was such a way to go viral on TikTok on purpose or whatever. Sure. They could be a master at social media, but not having that underlying marketing experience or or training, education, may make them very awkward in a corporate environment. Um, On the flip side, you hire somebody who's seasoned, who stopped learning 10 years ago, you know, they may not be the person to even put over the person who does social because they may not get it. So I, I think recruiters may be looking for those unicorns sometime without understanding there's two sides to that coin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that you're right that marketing is certainly one of those industries that's evolving so quickly that everybody has to be really dedicated to the idea of learning new skills all the time. And I'm not saying that everybody has to become you know a, a jack of all trades when it comes to skill sets, but having some fundamental understanding in each particular area helps those who are higher up within an organization really understand the day-to-day challenges that their team faces and also to make smarter decisions when it comes to uh, efficiency, right? So I'll give you an example back in the video space. If you are someone who is interested in producing more video content within your organization, it behooves you to sit with a video editor and talk a little bit about what makes for good raw content coming in so that they can be much more efficient on the editing side. Because an excellent video editor can make most things look pretty good, but you might be making their job really hard if you're recording a bunch of junk that actually is hard to edit together right? You're, you're tripling the amount of time that it's going to take in order to get the content that they need. Whereas if you are really aware of what are those things that go into the editing process, then you can make sure that your team is writing really great content creative briefs or really doing really great training or buying the right equipment or making sure that they have the right studio space up front so that you can actually be much more efficient on the production end of things. So again, if you are interested in leading the work in a particular area, I always think that there's value in getting to know what does that work actually take to get done.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) Even, even back as an employee, I always enjoyed managers who knew the work that they asked for because it kept them from asking for unrealistic things because they have done it before. So there's tremendous value in what you just said there. Definitely. So Zante, I want to respect your time, but before we go, um, we are both speaking at Content Marketing World this year. And those who are listening now may hear this before or after the events already happened, but... I see your topic is show, don't tell, putting CX at the center of marketing. So if our listeners hear this before content marketing world, I hope they attend. If not, they'll want to hear the replay. Uh, can you give us a brief overview of what that topic is and what you'll be sharing at content marketing world?
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this topic uh, at content marketing world. I'll be speaking on a really similar topic over at uh, marketing profs B2B summit as well. Uh, One of the things that we really believe over at Convince and Convert is that customer experience needs to be more integrated into the marketing story that you are telling because all of us have shifted in terms of how we purchase day to day, particularly during this post-pandemic period. We've really leapfrogged maybe 10 years into the future when it comes to just the expectations of the audience. So what do I mean by that? When we started two plus years ago with the pandemic, we were in a space where it was nice to be able to look up the menu of the restaurant that you were going to. It was nice to be able to see what the outdoor space of a particular uh, shop or store was like. But now it's absolute necessity. We are not willing to step out of our houses to go anywhere Or buy from any brand until we know that they are not going to waste our time. So the talk that I'm giving is about this idea that if you can showcase your customer experience in the story that you are telling on your marketing channels, again, whether you're a B2B organization or a B2C organization, that actually reassures your audience that you're a good fit for them. So for a B2B organization where you're saying, hey, we want you to come and try our particular tool, you know that a lot of software companies are already giving you a demo of their tool. But some people don't even want to schedule the demo. They want to see a video walkthrough right away. They want to be able to touch the different buttons. They want to see what the functionality is. By creating content that actually allows them to get at that information right away. You're actually doing yourself a favor because you're saving uh, both you and the customer time because they can reassure themselves and then self-qualify before they actually become a lead. Is this a good fit for us in terms of those different areas? If you're a company where again, your service is a really big component, being able to walk through, hey, once you become a client of ours, this is what our onboarding process looks like. This is what our service process looks like. This is what our service portal looks like. All of that is storytelling that It's an opportunity for us to build that trust, build that credibility, and quite frankly, become more verifiable to our customers so that they want to spend time with us. Again, two years ago, it was a nice to have. It made you put, maybe put you on the bleeding edge, but now you absolutely have to have those things. On the B2C side, I was just speaking to a client of mine two days ago about how they're unboxing experience is sad compared to their competitors (laughs) and that's a missed opportunity because guess what? That is part of the experience. How people ship to me matters to me in a way now that it maybe didn't two years ago, because that's my only touch point with the brand that's tactile. Whereas if you have a great unboxing experience or just really engaging packaging, it's memorable. One of my favorite small business examples is a company out of New Jersey called nuts.com. If you want nuts, dried goods, baking goods, anything like that, you can go to nuts.com. And they have great packaging. Their boxes tell the story in their proprietary font of how they're a third generation small family business, why all these different things are really fresh, how they source. They do it right on the package. The package is cute, it's fun, it's got little like drawings on it. When you get it, you feel joyful you feel like, wow, I really know these people and it's through a box. That's an opportunity that makes the experience worth talking about. So if you can put your experience at the heart of your marketing, I think that that's a really huge opportunity for brands in every space. And again, we're gonna dig really deep into that in that session at Content Marketing World. And I really do hope that folks who are attending will stop by that session, say hello to me, come ask questions always happy to meet folks and
0: answer questions. Well, they've heard you talk today, and so they'll know that they're going to get quality. I really enjoy your speaking. Um, so before you go, I want, first of all, I want to thank you tremendously for your time and insights today. And so from your speaking engagements to your agency, please take a moment to share anything else you'd like to share with the audience and maybe let us know how we can contact you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. If you are interested in speaking engagements, training for your team, workshops, please come see me over at zontiho.com. If you are interested in support for your small or medium business, please visit us over at mediavalery.com. And if you are a major brand that's looking to up-level your marketing, you really want to make sure that you are on the cutting edge of your content marketing, social media strategy, digital marketing, email, etc., then please come over to visit us at Convince and Convert.com. Again, at ConvinceAndConvert.com, we also have a fantastic blog and podcast and tons of video content. So if you are interested in just up-leveling as a marketer, it's another great resource for you. And I really encourage you to check out the content that's produced by our team.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again, Zanti. I want you to stay well and look forward to seeing you soon, a few weeks, maybe. Um, and thanks to our listeners. If you're listening to the podcast and also want to see Zanti and I, video of the podcast and others will be available in the podcast section of contentmonster.com. Again, thank you, Zanti.
1: Thanks so much, Lee. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing Podcast, a show brought to you by contentmonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on contentmonster.com, as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.